Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are continuing over a theme from last week of having people on in 2022 that we outrageously did not have on in 2021 or even 2020. Um, and so it's another first-time guest. Uh, now that Guy Denton is in the United States, we needed to basically get a British booster shot, as it were. Um, so we have Ryan Bourne, uh, Ryan Bourne, this is from the Cato bio and I have a question about this already. Ryan Bourne occupies the R. Evan Scharf chair for the public understanding of economics at Cato and is the author of the recent book, Economics in One Virus. We're going to get to the economics in one virus stuff in a moment, but I have to ask is like, so I hold the cliff Asnes chair in applied liberty. And as long as you don't ask me what applied liberty is, we'll be fine. But, um, Occupy, it just occurred to me when I was reading this, has taken on such a negative connotation. It makes it sound like it's not, in fact, your chair and you've seized it from the rightful owners. <laughs> um, uh, is, is that a Britishism or is that a just uh, the, you know, the, the typical institutional conservatism of Cato where these sorts of old usages live on for quite a while? What, I, it just, anyway, I thought it was interesting. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Well, it's great to be with you, Jonah. I think actually it was my preference and the reason that I opted for it is because it kind of felt weird calling myself uh, a chair because I'm not the a physical object of a chair and also I'm kind of not overseeing an organization given I'm the, given I'm the only person within that, uh, that role at Cato. So I kind of just thought the occupied sounded, uh, sounded better reflective of the reality of the situation. Um, but it's just, you know, Forget forget the Israel thing, right? Just like Occupy Wall Street. It just it feels like like who's this British guy sitting in my chair? Um, well, I could get booted out at any time, of course, so, of Cato's choosing. So for now, that's I true. They, they, the chair. they explained the same thing to me about the Asnes chair. It did not in any way imply tenure or permanence of any kind. Um, but I'm I'm used to I I, I grew up with that kind of th- stuff because when I was a little kid, my dad always used to tell me I could be replaced by a by above average intelligent monkey. Um, and so I always know that my, you know, that I, I'm on bar, borrowed time from my betters. Um, so again, I want to apologize that we didn't have you on when the book came out. I know we talked about doing it. I think the problem was you first asked me about coming on when the, when the book comes out like six or eight months before the book came out and I forgot. So, uh, and I apologize. And, uh, but um, why don't we just sort of start with, I assume this is a reference to a callback to um, economics in one lesson. 
um, uh, why don't you just sort of tell us what the what the inspiration for the book was, and you know what the main thesis is of it is. Sure. So many of your listeners might be aware of Henry Emery Hazlitt's great book Economics in One Lesson, and the kind of point of that book was to try and uh, explain basic economics to people um, through just highlighting that the way a good economist sees the world is to um, review the kind of broader trade-offs and secondary consequences of decisions rather than just um, looking at the immediate impacts of, of any given policy or or action. Um, I tried to do something a bit different um, with this book, which was essentially to use um, one example, the case study of the pandemic, to highlight a whole bunch of different um, economic lessons. And the inspiration for it really came about uh, when I was sat at home in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, watching uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, giving his pref- press conferences in New York. Uh, and he came out with that infamous line that, you know, politicians always say, and they say, uh, if these measures that we're taking save just one life, then I'll be happy. And, you know, for somebody working in the public understanding of economics, I thought that was a great opportunity to write an essay explaining how um, economists value risk mitigation and why we don't uh, live our lives or, or uh, uh, generate policy according to the uh, principle that you should be willing to spend unlimited amounts to save any given life. Um, and as I got writing that essay, uh, the next day there are a whole bunch of different states um, neatly dividing up industries into essential and non-essential designations. Um, so I decided perhaps I should also write something on um, the interconnectedness of a modern economy and how um, you know one business one business that seems non-essential might be in other businesses essential businesses, um, essential supplier. Um, so as the pandemic went on, I saw more and more examples of um, opportunities to just highlight basic economic principles um, through the example of the pandemic. And so what started off as an idea to write a couple of different essays turned into a 16-chapter, 80,000-word book. Um, uh, and I think it's a good introduction to economics um, for people who are kind of going to study at a university and and that kind of demographic. But actually, as I was writing it, I kind of came to the the realization that even though this this pandemic is obviously primarily a public health crisis, a lot of the mistakes that I perceive to have been made uh, during that time, I think often explicitly or implicitly stem from faulty economic thinking, whether that is the kind of inability to uh, more broadly judge um, trade-offs, whereas whether that's the inability to to kind of think on the the margin about the marginal costs and benefits of any given decision, whether it's ignoring people's behavioural response um, uh, to different policies or actions, or whether it's conflating you know public action and private action. Um, so I think uh, even readers who are kind of attuned to basic economic ideas would find the book. Um, useful because uh, I, I think it kind of thinks through some of those um, decisions that we've seen and, and how we might have improved them. Now, obviously, I had to kind of try and future-proof the book <laughs> to a certain extent um, because the situation's dratic- uh, drastically changed since. So I hope people read it in the spirit of when it was written, which is 2023, 2021, just before. In fact, it was released just before we kind of um, started learning about the, the, the Delta wave and that kind of really took off. 
Um, or so, sorry, the alpha wave first and then the delta wave. But I think most of the lessons um, contained within it still hold. Um, and I think it's held up surprisingly well, given the kind of drastic changes we've seen in circumstances since then. Yeah, no, it's 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 an important point, it seems to me, um, insofar as, you know, I make this point often about climate change. Um, I, depending on how reasonable your scenario is about climate change, I'm, I'm convinced about climate change. I think it's a thing. Um, we can argue, I don't think it's the equivalent of the comet and don't look up that's going to be here in six months. Um, but, uh, but I'm totally open. I'm not, I believe the, 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 the science at this point, And I think that climate change is real. I think it's the risks and costs are somewhat exaggerated, but that's fine. You know, there's also really bad worst case scenarios that we should think about. But the reason I bring it up is that just because I agree with the diagnosis, doesn't mean the diagnosers should have carte blanche to have the full remedy. And the same thing sort of applies listening to you talk about, about COVID. It's that in a moment, in an event that has profound, delivers profound shocks to the economic system that, you know, um, plays out in all sorts of different ways, the idea that the epidemiologists would, you should obviously listen to them. But the idea that you should let them overrule or not even take into account sort of the advice from economists about what makes sense and what doesn't in terms of just the allocation of resources and the, 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 the you know, and the cost benefit analysis stuff. And it seems like I think that one of the reasons why we got into the mess that we did is that we were basically hearing from one set of experts who were not experts on a lot of issues that that had to do with sort of 101 you know distribution of resources and meeting market demand yeah i think that's right and um obviously there's a big role for epidemiology um in this crisis and i don't think anybody's discounting that uh, but if you think back to those original kind of models that we saw coming out from places i don't like think anybody Imperial. reasonable is discounting that i think there are lots of people who are discounting that but i agree with you you should listen to epidemiologists they should have a say but I mean, the the you know there are people as of this morning telling people that the cure to COVID is to drink your own urine. So there are unreasonable people in having their say. But even the epidemiologists can get corrupted by politics, as we saw with the George Floyd protest stuff. My only point is, is that economists have a lot of important things to say about how to make how to figure out the best way to distribute goods and services and resources. Um, in a situation like this. And it seems like they were just given total short shrift, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, go on. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's more than that. Though. If you think back to those original kind of models that were put out from places like Imperial College London, um, spring of 2020, if you look at the aggregate death tolls that we've seen in the United States and then look at what they kind of predicted um, for the overall death toll for the pandemic, they've not been far out you know they were criticized quite heavily at, at, at the time but we've seen what 838,000 deaths attributable to to covid um excess deaths of um 942,000 i believe the, the latest cdc data is so when they were talking about 1 to 2 million people dying unless we took kind of drastic action that's not far off on the ballpark you know we're we're pretty much almost there what they got fundamentally wrong of course is if you look at the shape of the curves that their models uh, threw up in all of the 
the kind of uh, situations. Um, uh, well, the unmitigated situation, you'd see a massive spike. We kind of reach herd immunity and then this thing would drop off. And I, I think that kind of the limits of those models, there's, there's kind of two major things that they miss out. One is the, the one that you highlighted, which is their focus on the communicable disease. Um, they don't consider the broader costs and benefits of actions. But as importantly of that, as that, and where economists do have a role to play is that, you know, economists' whole job is to study human behavior. And uh, economists who were reviewing those models pretty early were saying, actually, when you get a relatively high prevalence of the disease, people will voluntarily step back from engaging in in lots of face-to-face activities. And actually, we would never, even in a situation where we didn't take any mitigation or suppression action through government, uh, we would never have a situation where we just run up herd immunity extraordinarily quickly, and then the curve would drop away. Actually, you know, people would voluntarily kind of um, uh, lead to a situation where we saw a more prolonged uh, fluctuation of cases uh, throughout the pandemic. And I think the economists have been proven um, right on that too. Do you have a dog in the fight about, you know, there's a, as you know, there are, there are many rooms in the mansion of libertarianism. Um, and, um, but there is a segment of libertarians that was very, very, very uh, skeptical. I'm trying to be polite and diplomatic here um, about any government measures they kind of turned, they kind of, it was kind of fascinating. It was like very, we're used to socialists turning Sweden into this imaginary Shangri-La that does everything right. But all of a sudden you had a whole bunch of libertarians saying that about Sweden. And every time I ever looked at the numbers, it seemed like Sweden's response was plausible and debatably better, you know, depending on the moment. But it was no silver bullet Brigadoon response to um, the pandemic. Do you have a view on like what countries or societies have actually had the best response to the pandemic, um, or is it everybody just screwed it up in their own way? Well, I think it depends on your starting point, right? So, um, I think if you go back, there was an early opportunity. Um, if we'd have rolled out diagnostic testing quickly and had the infrastructure there to engage in kind of cluster busting and contact tracing, I think it's hard to argue that at least for 2020 through much of 2021, countries like South Korea and Taiwan just did far better um, on, on almost all metrics. I mean, they were they were much uh, better at being able to keep the cases down over that period as a result of that kind of more targeted approach, identifying where people were infected and which areas uh, were suffering. They didn't have to shut down the whole of society. Um and uh, and as a consequence of that, of course, they were able to keep much more of their economy or the formal kind of market economy open and, and running. Now, of course, if you don't have that um, infrastructure ready to go and given the CDC messed up its test and then given the FDA was banning private labs from, from running their own tests, once you've got that kind of original sin, you're into very much uh, second best um, appro- approaches. And I really do think that was the original sin of the pandemic. I mean, um, you know, what, what's worse than having some tests on the market that are perhaps a bit faulty is having no tests at all. Um, and in that situation, um, there's a lot of false negatives. We talk about false positives and false negatives with tests. 
you know, there's a lot of false uh, negatives walking around people who um, are infected, uh, but don't know it if you don't have tests available. And as a result of that, um, politicians um, countrywide, uh, pretty much in that first wave, shut things down. So we all lived our lives as if everybody else um, was positive. And that obviously had a very, very high um, economic and, and, and social cost. Um now, after that, when this kind of becomes more endemic, are there uh, better ways of managing things? I think um, it's kind of bizarre to me how much of the focus and how central kind of mask wearing and mask mandates have, have become. I always thought that kind of masks were a relatively low cost measure for me individually to take to to mitigate risks a bit. I think looking across countries, it's difficult to argue at this stage that wearing cloth or surgical masks makes a kind of huge difference in the transmission of this disease, but it's kind of taken on this totemic um, uh, status in this pandemic. And, you know, uh, and in preparation for this podcast, um, me and my uh, research assistant yesterday were kind of digging around, looking at, you know, what what um, restrictions are still in place uh, across the country at the moment. And um, in most places that do have um, restrictions, other than the kind of vaccine um, kind of passport entry things. Um, mask mandates seem to be the main surviving um, kind of pandemic management tool. And I find that baffling given what we know about this virus, given that we know that it's airborne and given the experience of the East Asian countries. I promised Michael Strain that we would have, uh, after I made you all within uh, throw him under the bus about what the best, what the most scientific parts of social science are in so strain wants to have a whole podcast about this where the where he challenges Yuval to a duel or something but um in anticipation of that i think that this is one of the problems that not just economy i mean not just economists but everybody miss uh uh underestimated which is the degree to which the combination of trumpified crazy politics and a once in a century pandemic and the psychological toll it takes plus the toll of of closing schools kids at home dislocations uh lizard brain reactions to disease and all these kinds of stuff no one really anticipated how stupid things could get about things like masks whether you're pro mask or anti mask the idea that somehow um it would get to the point where like i just there's not a lot of economic models that could predict that people would want to punch each other in the face over not wearing a mask or wearing a mask, given, as you say, the low cost stakes about wearing one or not wearing one. But it became so totemic, um, so sort of such a sort of visual shibboleth for so much of of the society. I mean, I remember there was the was it David Hogg, the kid, the kid from the high school who's now at Harvard, whatever. Early on, he said, you know, I, I'm fully vaccinated. And this is when we thought vaccines would stop all transmissibility. He was like, I'm fully vaccinated, but I'm still not going to wear, I'm still going to wear a mask around school because I don't want anyone here to think I'm a conservative, right? <laughs> That's not rational self-interest rightly understood in, in the economic sense. I mean, it may be in the sociological sense, but um, so like, what were some other things that... I don't want to, I'm not trying to get you to talk down your book, but uh, like, <laughs> what were some other things where economics 
did not necessarily like 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 you and Lincecum and all these guys you could point to what the right thing to do was but the politics and the sociology and the psychology were just running against it in every way i mean it seems to me like the the demonization of quote unquote price gouging is a good example of this where people hate it even though there's a very strong argument for raising prices for certain things in a an emergency situation anyway can you think of some other areas where like the psychology where you knew what the right course to take where the economists were right about the stuff but the country just wouldn't go there yeah i think there's a few different ones i mean obviously you've touched on one with the the price gouging uh, regulations and i think that hits on a kind of broader point in that i think a lot of people who were making decisions who perhaps weren't versed in economics um misunderstood or or, or perhaps um you know, uh, downplayed the extent to which a market economy is incredibly adaptive and responsive. Um, so you saw that early on, you know, let's put the efficacy of masks aside for a second. You saw that early on when uh, Anthony Fauci and Jerome Adams came out and explicitly told people um, who increasingly were wearing masks in, in public places not to go out and buy masks. Um, now, in part, they said that was because um, they didn't think asymptomatic people spread the the disease at that stage so they you know there was a scientific aspect to it so they didn't think people wearing masks in the community would 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 do much um but that might be a reason to tell people to warn people that this might not prevent them um getting the virus um it doesn't seem to me a reason to actually tell people not to go out and buy the the masks explicitly and i think the reason they did that was pretty clear is because they didn't want masks kind of being used up um and then unavailable to um, hospital and nursing home. Fauci in fact said that, didn't he? Didn't he admit that he was afraid of a run on masks? Yeah, he did say explicitly at one stage, and that to me just, you know, in the in the extreme kind of static sense, of course he's right. <laughs> you know, on any given day there are only a certain number of masks, but um, markets um, provided you allow price signals to work are incredibly um, adaptive. You get a big surge in demand. All of a sudden, and prices go up. It becomes more profitable for um, entrepreneurs and businesses to turn their facilities into the production of face masks. And indeed, that's what we saw. You know, that's what we saw on this. That's what we saw on um, hand sanitizer with distilleries moving into the, the product production of it. Of course, now we recognise that this doesn't spread as much through fomites, and uh, businesses are actually giving away shed loads of the stuff to schools and things. Um, uh, so that is one. That is kind of. Um, one big, big example, and and that operates not just through the pricing stuff. I mean, the requisitioning of of, of kind of factories um, uh, by the federal government in 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 certain situations for the production of certain things. These things um, might make intuitive sense, but you know, if you're a business thinking about how you might prepare for the next pandemic, the possibility that you're not going to be able to kind of raise your prices and and profit from a big surge in demand or that the government might step in and take over your factory is actually a deterrent for building and building that option ready supply for next time. So it actually undermines our resilience. The need for government becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, you know, I, I noticed this the, the other day when, um, Oren Cass tweeted that, um, efficiency was, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he tweeted that efficiency was the opposite of resilience which appears to me a kind of one of these other kind of fallacies that national conservatives have jumped on during this pandemic. This idea that as a result of 
um, supply chains trying to make themselves as as efficient as possible, um, they've been incredibly um, uh, fragile when a big disruption uh, like the pandemic has hit. I think that's an error too. I think it's an error um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I think it's an error, first of all, because uh, efficiency isn't the opposite of of resilience. Um, Actually having an efficient economy makes us richer. And um, when we're richer, when an unexpected um, shock (laughs) to the economy hits that makes us worse off, uh, we're better placed to be able to provide relief or have resources to actually deal with the consequences of the pandemic. But secondly, it kind of strikes me that... uh, it kind of presumes that the the problem is always external, right? Let's suppose we did um, engage in active efforts to kind of repatriate a whole bunch of manufacturing capacity to meet the needs of a future pandemic that might look very similar to COVID-19. When um, uh, that pandemic hits, we may well uh, be, be better placed if um, everywhere else in the world is suffering and, and we're able to maintain production. Uh, but when you have uh, something like this, you know, there's been situations in this pandemic where U.S. COVID cases and um, people having to take time off work has been a lot worse in the U.S. than the rest of the world. And one of the virtues of free trade is actually uh, it insulates you a bit from the risk of domestic shocks. And provided you have a broad range of potential suppliers, actually diversifies you against risks in any given um, country. So I think those two uh, those two uh, kind of mistakes are ones that I see again and again. First of all, under you know underestimating the adaptiveness of a market economy. Um, but secondly, kind of presuming that um, the efficiency that's been built up by uh, market action over decades um, has necessarily been found wanting in this pandemic. And I actually think that um, you know there's. Some economists have modelled this. Um, there's no evidence, actually, that if we'd have had substantively more manufacturing capacity in the US in this crisis, that we would have been able to ride it out better in terms of maintaining overall economic output. Um, I apologize to everybody for not knowing the answer to this, but um, when you're talking about the sort of the moral hazard problem of when the government comes in and says you can't raise your prices, well, that for the next pandemic, that makes it less enticing to get into the a rapid response mode because the the foreseeable profits won't be there if you think it's very likely that the government is going to put a wet blanket on you. I think that's a really good point. It seems like the mother of all examples of that, and this is what I apologize for not knowing, is when Biden announced that he was going to give away the patents for the vaccines, break the patent, you know, proper uh, the IP. Has that actually happened or have they quietly just sort of pushed away? I, I mean, I honestly can't remember where, maybe it's my COVID brain fog, where that stands. I, I, I know that was, it caused a huge amount of agita at the time and since, but has it actually happened? I'm not sure on that question. Uh, uh, you know, we believe in the division of labor at Cato, and I think um, uh, <laughs> Scott Scott Lincecum was um, reviewing that issue uh, in more depth than I was. Um, I don't know about that, but I think that's is a great example of the kind of phenomenon that I'm talking about here. Right. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, the idea of giving away those patent rights um, 
strikes me as so incredibly stupid um, and dangerous because um, you want every incentive in the world to exist for companies to come up with new effective vaccines really, really, really quickly. And I get, you know, Pfizer's made money and all that kind of stuff. But like the at the end of the day, intellectual property rights are a, just the massive incentive for for ma for major investment and in risk taking. And to to even suggest that we those could be taken away in a sort of misguided effort of, you know, beneficence or philanthropy around the world just strikes me as crazy. I mean, I have no problem whatsoever with paying Pfizer a lot of money to make more vaccines and then giving them away to the rest of the world if we need to. I mean, that's, we want the world vaccinated, but the idea of just sort of saying, yeah, sucks for you, we're gonna give away your property is just strikes me as bananas. But I feel like it must not have happened in full because we would have heard more screaming from various people about it, you know? Um, yeah, though, though, uh, though Alex Tabrock had a great post today asking you know, where, um, the federal government said uh, before that we'd be developing quickly um, vaccines for specific variants, but there doesn't seem to be any talk at the moment of an Om Omicron-specific <laughs> vaccine anytime soon. And it doesn't appear as if that's purely um, a regulatory um, issue either. Um, so it's not clear what's going on there, but I imagine on the margin, things like uh, the threat of um, <laughs> revoking patents and things doesn't incentivize these companies to... Uh, well, and other companies who perhaps didn't produce a first vaccine to, to rush forward to um, to adapt to the ever-changing situation. Do you have a theory or a preferred explanation for why? I think I think Scott Gottlieb, my AI colleague, if we're going to just start dropping think tank colleagues' names all over the place, um, uh, his explanation in his book about how the CDC and the FDA um screwed up testing in the beginning with the cdc pushing for you know I, as much as i just said all the stuff about about intellectual property it's crazy for the government to be holding up testing by by trying to protect its pat the government's patents on something that's just bonkers to me but that explanation only takes you so far do you have a a theory of the case as to why testing even after Biden gets in and those guys say testing is a disaster and we're going to fix testing is still the mess that it is? It's a good question. Um, well, I, th I think Cato has been on the case for FDA reform uh, for a long time. And obviously there's, there's kind of two, um, two villains of this piece in, in the first um, situation in spring of 2020, the seed, you know, under the, the protocols, the CDC was responsible for producing a test. It was then supposed to kind of roll that out to, to kind of public labs and scale up when it was considered necessary. And it was just unfit. And uh, Scott's book is great on this, uh, Scott Gottlieb's book. It was just kind of unfit and unready for the sort of scale that would be necessary for a mass, um, uh, extremely infectious kind of uh, uh, infectious disease like, like COVID-19. So it wasn't just... Aside from the fact that the, the test was at 40, it just wasn't able, um, didn't have the capabilities to kind of scale up uh, quickly. I think the issue with the FDA is is a bit different. Um, uh, as I understand it, initially for the diagnostic tests, um, uh, 
they were just worried that um, if they approved tests too quickly, there would be kind of 40 tests on the market. And so we'd get a, you know, a misleading picture of what the pandemic was. Of course, we did get a misleading picture of where the pandemic was because we didn't have uh, any tests available for a number of weeks. The issue now, issues now, I think, are kind of a bit different. And they're to do with, they have been to do with regulating uh, rapid tests as if they were ordinary kind of medical diagnostic tools. Um, and the analogy that, well, not the analogy, but I think this is where economists can kind of um, come in because we're always thinking about kind of defining the counterfactual, right? So um, consider a situation where like I might wake up one morning and I, I do this fairly often and you kind of have a bit of a sore throat and you don't quite know whether it's a, a consequence of um, a mild COVID infection or it's just because you've just been um, out boozing the night before and you've got a bit of acid reflux or whatever, you know, you have no idea what it is. Um, in the absence of widely available rapid tests, um, what you might do instead is just um, judge how you feel or take your own temperature to check whether you've got a fever um, rather than actually engage in um, doing this relatively fast rapid test that if it gives a positive result, you'd isolate quickly, you know, in an extreme scenario where you were worried about it, um, you might go and get a PCR test, but then might take one to two days to, to get the results back. If you live in a, a, a building with lots of other residents, you might already, if it's Omicron, have kind of spread it around the building as a result of having to go out and, and do that. So I think a lot of the FDA problems have stemmed from, uh, regulating these types of rapid antigen tests as if they are medical diagnostic tools. And of course, if this was a situation where a given test result would necessarily lead to a treatment uh, whereby, you know, if the sensitivity of the test was off or whatever, um, uh, that could have quite profound consequences for a person's health. In this situation, we're talking about somebody taking a test and, and aside from uh, the discomfort that they might get by shoving it to the back of their nose and touching brain or whatever, it's not going to have direct health consequences for them. They might take time off work unnecessarily or whatever. So as a result of regulating these things as if they were medical diagnostic tools, they demanded very, very high sensitivity for the tests um, so that you wouldn't get many uh, as, as many kind of false negatives. Um, but a, a kind of trade-off of that for a long time was we weren't getting the benefits of uh, tests that gave us results quickly and allowed people to to kind of isolate uh, quickly. So I think that was a failure. I'm not sure why um, there wasn't a way of pivoting institutionally to change those regulations. I don't know whether it would have required an act of Congress. There are some congressmen now looking at um, kind of FDA reform. And I think a safe harbor for these kind of medical uh, diagnostic tools that just give people information, um, which seems to me might be something that we could think about from a kind of First Amendment speech perspective, you know, <laughs> ability to obtain information about your own uh, health status. I think reform in that area, and alongside reform of uh, recognition perhaps of tests that have been approved in other countries are probably the, about the best that we might be able to do in uh, kind of improving the situation at an FDA level. But I, I mean, to answer your question bluntly, I'm not sure why there wasn't the institutional capacity to, to change uh, the way that we think about those types of tests. I don't know whether it was inertia. I don't know whether, whether there was a degree of 
cronyism in certain companies having their their tests approved and others not. I don't want to attribute kind of motive to people at the FDA because I'm sure they've had a very difficult job over the last few years. Um, but I think that thinking, that that kind of institutionalized way of thinking of judging these things as diagnostic tools was the kind of key problem for why we haven't got the widely available tests. I assume in your briefing packet, when you start working at, at Cato, they tell you about John Nestor, the famous guy who worked at the FDA. Um, it's a great story. If you have, if you don't know it, uh, you can uh, just, you can, I'm sure he's got a Wikipedia page, but the gist of it was, it was this guy who worked at the FDA. Um, he approved drug, his job was to approve drugs. And um, the funny thing was the sort of Tom Wolf fictional true life kind of part of it was that he really got on the public's radar in a certain way because there was a story in the Washington post about how somebody was destroying traffic on the beltway um, because he refused to drive faster than 55 miles an hour, but he stayed in the left lane and like traffic experts could, could figure out that one person was doing this and it was screwing up everything, but they couldn't identify the person because they couldn't find him. And, you know, this is days before cameras or whatever. And this guy, John Nestor, reveals like, yeah, that's me. I'm fine. And he writes a letter to the Washington Post saying, I'm following the law. Why should I disadvantage myself when the left lane is so much more clear of traffic? Why should I uh, suffer by going in the right lane, letting these cars break the law to pass me? I'm, I, I, I've done nothing wrong, right? turns out that this is the guy who's in charge of approving all sorts of drugs at the FDA got all sorts of awards from Ralph Nader because he refused to approve any drugs because his whole mission in life was to be hyper cautious and follow the rules to a fairly well to the point where um, just he was a bureaucratic stopgap on or, or, or traffic jam on everything. And I think there's some of that culture at FDA, but I suspect, and this is just a purely a theory. Like you, I don't want to like, it's just pure speculation. And I'm sure the other things that you listed played roles as well. But I think one of the problems, and this, this is sort of veers into some rank punditry, one of the problems that, that, that Biden and the Democrats have gotten themselves into is that they are such a party of government that they are ultimately deferential to bureaucracies and particularly scientific bureaucracies because they also claim to be the party of science where um, say what you will about Donald Trump, like the warp speed thing was like, let's do an end run around bureaucracies and create an incentive structure to do something really, really quickly. And we'll beat up on the bureaucrats who are trying to, to slow it down They're culturally sort of sociologically the, where Democrats come from is, is to question a quote unquote scientist, even though there are lots of opinions among scientists, um, about the, the science is, is like, a devout Catholic questioning a priest about morality. Um, they just, and I think that tendency, that deference had to have played some role, at least at the margins in, in how, because when you just think about it, it was a huge political priority for the Biden administration coming in and to be here a year later or nearly a year later with this much of a screw up about testing. Um, it can't be that they didn't try. It has, there has to be some other, explanation to it um and i i just that's my suspicion is that's part of it yeah so one of the 
kind of riffing off that a bit, I mean, one of the interesting things is the Biden administration has, has put together this pandemic preparedness plan. I don't know um, if you've seen it, $65 billion outlay that kind of says, you know, we want to get to a position. It's a bunch, it's a bunch, it's a basically a wish list, a wish list of things that if we'd have had them in this pandemic, could have alleviated lots of the problems. So, you know, we'll have widespread availability and manufacturing capacity for rapid testing. Um, we'll engage in developing the capacity so that we can um, quickly roll out, even more quickly roll out vaccines next time, yada, yada, yada. Um, and it strikes me kind of reading that. It's all well and good. And I'm, I'm sure some of the things on the margins could help. But I think it massively underestimates that many um, mistakes in this pandemic have been more fundamentally institutional. Um, and, and many have just been, simply been bad decisions, right? And bad leadership um, from the top as well. And the idea that when you spent, you know, $6 trillion, um, admittedly only a small proportion of that went to, to public health stuff and a lot to relief, but when you've spent $6 trillion, um, it seems to me wishful thinking to think that just pumping in $65 billion into existing unreformed agencies um, would have would have alleviated all of the problems that we've seen in this pandemic and got us to a career situation. That seems to me pretty fanciful. Um, even aside from the fact that I think you know the the risk with that sort of investment is that you would um, end up fighting the last war and kind of readying the country for a disease that looked exactly like COVID nineteen and perhaps not be ready for a slightly different threat next time. But I think that gets to what you're saying about uh, being deferential to regulatory agencies and, and the scientists within them. Um, it, it seems to me that the Biden administration thinks the binding constraint and the reason that uh, we've seen so much death and uh, you know, lost liberties and uh, downturn in economic activity was just simply there wasn't, wasn't enough money floating around existing institutions and, and, and enough capacities to deliver this stuff, when I think a lot of the problems have been far more uh, fundamentally institutional. Yeah, I mean the I mean the difference thing also explains again in part, not in whole, the screw up with the school stuff. I mean, we gave what I think it was 140 billion. We gave a lot of money to states and localities and education systems around this country to respond to the pandemic, and now parents are being told again, uh, the schools just can't handle being open during a pandemic, at least in places like Chicago and, you know, and, and other places. Um, and the idea that Biden shouldn't just say, what the hell, you know, are you guys thinking? We gave you this money to prepare. Are you saying that you screwed it up? But like, they're so deferential to teachers unions. It's, and also just sort of education bureaucrats in general that I, it's, it's, it's very much a sclerosis, you know, a demosclerosis argument about how it's one thing to be the party of government. It's also, but it's another thing when the actual, for want of a less triggering word, the party apparatchiks are all actually creatures of government and therefore deferential to constituencies that, you know, that the political appointees are supposed to be bossing around, not deferring to. And, um, and I think that's uh, it's a big through line about the problems that the Biden administration has gotten into is, is that they don't see enough separation between their role as pol elected political appointees and, you know, and political leaders and the bureaucrats. They think their job is to help the bureaucrats 
be bureaucrats rather than help the bureaucrats do their jobs properly. And it's, it's gotten them in a lot of trouble. We've kind of uh, seen a, a shift the other way as well. So if you remember back to, to 2020, a lot of the kind of bureaucrats and public health leaders explicitly came out and said, you know, we're given advice on the, uh, the science of the pandemic, the, the stage of the disease or whatever, recommendations for what we should do to flatten the curve. But, you know, it's up to the politicians to consider the broader costs and benefits. I believe Anthony Fauci even said that in a um, kind of Senate hearing um, answering a question from from Rand Paul. And of course, you know, I'm not one of those libertarians who denies any role for government in, in a pandemic. I think to the extent that we have a government in infectious disease control and novel infectious disease control seems pretty high up there on a list of things that you might consider kind of a public good. But clearly there have been lots of um, government failures in this pandemic. And, and anyway, to get back to my po my point on that, one thing that was really noticeable a couple of weeks ago when uh, the CDC changed its advice and said, well, actually, if you're asymptomatic, even if you tested positive after five days, actually, you can go back, you can go back to work now. Uh, and the reasoning behind it, uh, which was championed by Fauci and others, was that um, otherwise there was a risk that too many people in essential industries would kind of be off work and, and things would stop um, operating. Now, it seems to me that that is a broader trade-off and a cost-to-benefit of um, a public health decision. And uh, it, it's kind of been str striking to me that um, under the Biden administration, there has been a willingness for public health officials to kind of start pontificating on these uh, broader trade-offs and uh, some of the economic consequences of their decisions to justify changing things in a way that they said, you know, this is not this is beyond my lane um, in 2020. And I think that's kind of an underappreciated change in tone that we've seen in recent weeks. Since you brought up, and we only have a little bit of time left, um, the kind of libertarian you are, um, I'm just wondering, you know, the name of this podcast is The Remnant. I'm I, I'm fairly deeply invested in the future or lack thereof of my kind of conservatism. Um, how are you feeling about your kind of libertarianism these days? I mean, there's the, our Venn diagrams ideologically overlap a lot, but like, um, it seems to me that libertarianism, which should be more immune to a lot of the things that are plaguing conservatism these days, turns out has its own sort of nationalist version of Omicron plaguing it in some ways. And, um, uh, and has its issues. Like, how do you feel about the, the health, the current state of libertarianism these days? Yeah, that's a good question. There's no inherent reason why somebody skeptical of the efficacy of shutting down schools should also be somebody who, um, thinks that PCR tests are fundamentally misguided and, um, you know, thinks that the vaccines are, developed by bill gates in order to give us um you know to to track us and advocates for drinking your own urine to, to kind of cure oneself from uh covid19 i think what's going on here and i've kind of been persuaded on this by a guy i used to work with who'd be a very good guest for the podcast at a later date called steve davies um in the uk he's a historian he works for the institute of economic affairs and he outlined a thesis to me about four or five years ago he said the developments that I see in politics at the moment 
represent a fundamental realignment. And what he means by that is whereas for the past, I don't know, 100 years or so, we've considered um, economics to be the primary uh, dividing line between um, major political parties across countries, that is actually changing to cultural issues. And I think libertarians are being split by that just as much as conservatives and and kind of leftists are. Um, uh, you see that with um, you see that with the fact that that so many people have jumped on uh, doubting every piece of uh, kind of public health and, and science through the pandemic. You see it with the you know obsessive to my mind, obsessive overfocus on edge cases and things like trans issues and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, even some kind of academic libertarians I know and respect and have learned a lot from, um, they have begun to believe that, um, you know, the kind of universities and, um, and uh, the leftist media or whatever are kind of a much bigger threat to the republic than... Um, some of the actions that we saw on January 6th and, and uh, with the Republican Party and Donald Trump. And I think libertarians are kind of dividing on that issue. One one thing that I've really noticed since I've been here um, in comparison, well, in the UK, libertarianism really is just about um, kind of free market ideas and economic liberalism. There isn't really a, a full-throated Cato-esque kind of libertarian voice out there. Um, but I think Trump and the direction of the Republican Party is, uh, has divided libertarians pretty sharply. There are some that are just kind of so appalled with uh, what they saw, particularly on January 6th. They're just completely unwilling to work with the Republican Party on an, an ongoing basis on, on policy issues, even where there's significant overlap. Uh, there's other libertarians, of course, that if your policy issue is something where uh, one party is, is much better than another, then out of convenience, you're you're kind of willing to work with them. My my kind of thought on this is that the key question that libertarians um, who do differentiate between the two parties and don't consider themselves part of the two parties have to think about from a strategic um, per- perspective um, is is whether they really do need to kind of align with one tribe or another, or whether we can just kind of pick and choose and and work with. Um, work with different parties on an issue by issue basis. So, you know, work with Democrats primarily who are interested in um, pretty fundamental criminal justice reform, work with uh, Republicans when it comes to tax policy, work with um, the kind of moderates down the center on free trade. Uh, but, you know, li- libertarians disagree on that as well. So if, if I'm sounding confused, it's because I am really, I mean, there's, there are different Venn diagrams and, and types of um, um, different types of libertarians, uh, but they're divided on a whole range of different issues. Um, for many, it's about the cultural stuff. For many, it's about strategy, um, how best to kind of get our ideas out there and, and implemented across a range of issues. Uh, for others, the, the kind of divergences on emphasis Obviously, we still care about drug legalization, but at the moment, there seem to be much bigger immediate threats to liberty than um, than, than some of the issues perhaps historically we focused on. Um, so we're going through the same the same difficult uh, trying to you know disentangle the same difficult knot of different um, problems that I think conservatives like you and 
uh, more moderate Democrats are kind of having to deal with because of the bifurcation of the two major parties and becoming more and more extreme. Um, I have to say, Jonah, though, when I kind of listen to your podcasts, I feel myself agreeing with you 85 to 90% of the time. And I think there's probably more that uh, unites us than divides us. And I think even in this conversation, we probably agree on kind of 90% of, of what we've talked about. And I wonder whether the most kind of central, sensible approach for kind of Cato types and uh, reason foundation types is to try and build on that kind of coalition of the sensibles who are kind of disgusted by the direction uh, that both major parties have been dragged into. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot in there um, that I, I, I didn't disagree with any of it. Um, I do think that there are some other distinctions that are worth making. It's that part of the part one of the things that sort of inoculates you and your colleagues at Cato from a lot of the stuff is the fact that you guys are actually at a think tank that is dedicated to sort of doing the hard work of figuring out policy solutions to things and and not just making the sort of classic libertarian problem of the perfect the enemy of the good um but how to like you know when so there, oh, there's, oh, there, there are a lot of different kinds of libertarians, but one of the forms of libertarian argument I cannot stand, which has its analogs on the left and the right and conservatives too, but is there's a giant building that the government paid to put up and um, it's, it was a mistake to build it in the first place, but never mind with public money. There's one kind of libertarian that says, okay, how are we going to get rid of this build, dismantle this building in the best way possible and figure out what to replace it with. And then there's another kind of libertarian who doesn't want to get dirty <laughs> by actually figuring out that this real world existing problem exists and that, you know, like, like blowing it up is not an option, um, that you actually have to do certain things to dismantle it and to figure out the policies so it doesn't happen again. And you have to deal with the world as it exists rather than the ideal of the world that, um, you imagine it to be. And, and there's a lot of that stuff among libertarians, but Cato doesn't do that thing. Cato is actually like, here's the world as it is. We want to move the ship in the right direction. And we understand given the givens that it's going to require very small turns over a long period of time to get where we want to go. There are a lot of professional libertarians who are just not like that. And like libertarian party, um, you know, famously you know like serious libertarians you know are like lucy in the football with the, with the libertarian party every few years they're like okay maybe this time they'll hold the ball in place and i'll actually be able to kick it and every time the libertarian party turns back into a star trek convention or a you know a weed legalization convention <laughs> or a Rand paul you know whatever and um um and I worry that like those kinds of the libertarians who are really sort of populist, more populist than they are libertarian, um, they seem to be taking over at the grassroots a lot more than even the, the drug legalizers were 10 years ago. Um, but maybe that's just my impression from afar. Um, but the other point I was just going to make is that I agree with you about, or with your friend about how economics used to divide the parties and that's less the case these days, but I think it's a broader and deeper phenomenon in the sense that 
economics let's put in europe or or in europe land where you're from um the the differences between class had an enormous amount to do with economics not purely about economics but enormous a lot in america um class differences were always very hard to pin down but they've become even more difficult now because you can have some phd grad from harvard who makes $45,000 a year and you know uh, drives a car that recycles uh french fry oil um who talks like he is of a higher status of a guy who owns you know uh 15 applebees um because of the way our culture works now high educational status is deemed to be higher class in some ways than raw economic you're still sort of a philistine um uh you know backwater person if even if you're the millionaire next door if you're not one of these in these sort of credentialed places in life and that creates enormous and difficult to predict class conflicts where each party thinks that they are the champions of the downtrodden but their definition of what it means to be downtrodden is different than it used to be and um i don't know how you fix that and um anyway uh it's it's a complicated story but the the if if so my argument for a million years now has been like one of the reasons why i concentrate so much on conservatives is that even though it seems like treachery and and apostasy to so many former fans is that i actually care about conservatism and if you lose conservatism well then the ball game's really over because there's no one who's going to make the arguments for limited government at scale you know limited government and 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 uh constitutionalism and all that kind of stuff um and the thing is is like if we lose the libertarians um then the there's that's one less constituency available to keep conservatives honest at least about economics and um that worries me greatly when i see the sort of craziness that has plagued so much of the right seeping into i mean the lou rockwell crowd has always been kind of nuts but it seems like and maybe this is just the distortion effect of twitter in social media but it feels like cato is becoming more of an island than it used to be um is, is that your sense of it or not um i'm not sure i mean i definitely think that there are probably many many people who would self-identify as libertarians and i've i've got a some of this some of this would consider me a bit of a squish on the pandemic for <laughs> being willing to tolerate and actually um kind of evaluate the government's role in in what i saw as a kind of even-handed way from the principles that i have so i guess in that sense um we have become a, a little bit more of an island i i think though that um the kind of the kind of opportunity comes from the, the fact that many other many other kind of secondhand dealers in ideas commentators i think are increasingly recognizing the value of some libertarian insights and i think the pandemic has kind of accelerated that to a certain extent I remember at the start of the pandemic, I think it was Derek Thompson at the Atlantic had a piece, you know, where he kind of uh, chided libertarians by saying something like, you know, 
there's no libertarians in a pandemic, basically. And, you know, a, a really fundamental level, of course, he was right, because if you believe in any, um, well, in the caricatured version of libertarianism, he was he was right in the sense that, of course, there's a role for government in an infectious uh, disease pandemic. Uh, but then later on, uh, a year and a half or so um, afterwards, he wrote a piece saying actually the libertarians were broadly right in their criticisms of, uh, of the FDA. So I think there's this paradox at the moment whereby I, I think you're right that there's many kind of people who are coming to libertarianism via YouTube or via Lou Rockwell or others who um, – who uh, perhaps not as fond of kind of Cato's um, kind of policy focus um, approach and uh, being w- willing to work within Washington, <laughs> which entails a, a degree of tolerance for um, ideas that you might not always uh, agree with. But the paradox is at the same time, I think certain libertarian ideas, um, their kind of currency is um, – improving um in washington and to a certain extent that's always been the case you can kind of make advances in some areas and then you retreat in others um i do think there's a more fundamental challenge for all think tanks and all um different institutions with the development of kind of social media in that it's unclear how much of our time we should kind of dedicate to the pure policy stuff and how much you should kind of dedicate to the more uh, public facing educational outreach uh, kind of organizing work. Cato obviously is primarily about the former, but I think other institutions are struggling to um, to balance whether to purely focus on the policy or to become more educational or even, indeed to become kind of more campaigny and keep keep um, that kind of um, classical liberal version of libertarianism going through kind of more activist organizations. So I don't know the answer as to... Um, as to whether um, in the longer term um, my version of libertarianism can be uh, successful and and enduring. Certainly on certain issues, um, it appears that uh, Cato has become more of an island or or a fortress or whatever you want to describe (laughs) it. But um, in others, I do think we're making alliances in ways that actually we could push forward on reforms of certain things, whether that be criminal justice policy or, or FDA reform. So, you know, it, it's a, mix, a mixed bag. There are no final victories in politics or there are no final victories in uh, the battle of ideas. And we've, we advance in some, we retreat in others. Um, uh, and how you judge how we're doing overall really depends on how much weight you place on the importance of different issues, I think. So, every, you know, lots of people will come to different conclusions dependent on that. So, I mean, there are people probably not listening to this podcast, but if they are, who think that's an enormous amount of gibberish because Tucker Carlson told us that, that in fact, libertarians have been running Washington for the last 30 years, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I always gets a reaction out of my libertarian friends. There's like, how did I miss this? You know, my entire career has been here as a libertarian and I had no idea I was running everything. Um, but that's because, but, that, but that's related, Jonah, to the, the excellent column that you wrote on narrative because um, the rhetoric from many Republicans uh, after Reagan was in favor constantly of, of free market economics in a relatively 
pure form in much of the Republican Party, not all of the Republican Party, you know, it's an, you always had the Pat Buchanan's or whatever, uh, but much of the Republican Party, um, you know, sang the tunes, even if they didn't uh, kind of deliver on them. Um, so, uh, you know, because, because conservatism now is so much about defining the, the, the narrative, they're able to look to the rhetoric we saw over those decades as like evidence that actually it was the libertarians and the rabid free marketers that were were kind of running the party. We know differently, of course, because we're kind of immersed in the in the policy stuff and and know that um, the US has never been a uh, unilateral free trading nation and yada yada yada. Um, but there is, you know, they are able to point to the speeches that were made over over decades that suggested that um, most Republicans in Washington were signed up for free market classical liberal guys, um, and that speak and that was uh, that was powerful. I mean, it was powerful for a reason that you hi- highlight quite often on this podcast, which is um, about hypocrisy. You know, when Republicans did deviate from those principles, you could accuse them of, of being hypocrites because they at least did acknowledge that rhetorically that, that there was a kind of right way to do economic policy. And then when they deviated it, that was implicitly a wrong way of doing economic policy. Uh, the difficulty at the moment is it's not entirely clear where the party's going to end up and, and what the economic principles that underpin it are. Uh, there are some people who still, still sound like me, and then there are others who sound like... Um, like Oren, Oren Cass, who want the government to play a more active role in industrial policy and want a few tax credits here and there to, to, to push things in a particular direction. And then there are others who want to bring back a kind of Catholic theocracy, <laughs> don't care much about uh, economics at all, to the, uh, unless it kind of uh, contributes to their conception of the common good. So um, who wins out in that kind of royal rumble of um, ideas on economics, I'm not sure. What I do know, and where I think Steve Davies was right, is that the thing that unites a lot of those tribes uh, is that they're, they're fighting on the same side of the culture war. Um, and I think economics is still up for grabs within that within that uh, kind of subset of groups that remain within the Republican coalition. Yeah, so that gives me a certain modicum of hope because, and th- this is something... I've been trying to, you know, I used to tell young college kids and conservative activists and stuff, particularly in the Obama days, which is that if you actually believe our ideas, you know, your Adam Smith and Hayek public understanding of economic stuff, you actually, if you actually believe this stuff is true, then you should have not blind faith, but some confidence that the ideas that disagree with this stuff are false <laughs> and that their falsehood or falsity will manifest itself in negative outcomes over time. And as Edmund Burke, you know, famously said, examples, of the school of mankind and he will learn it. No other. Sometimes you have to show people stuff. So the people who were like making fun of libertarians two years ago, at the beginning of the pandemic, now saying they were right. It's because facts have revealed themselves to il- illuminate the fact <laughs> that the libertarians were making some really good points. The idea that, and this is a constant refrain on the podcast, so I apologize, but the idea that somehow Hayek's knowledge problem points go into remission if you're a Catholic integralist um, 
it's just lunacy to me. Like, and, and particularly when the emotional and political passion that drives a lot of that national conservative, which is not the same thing as the Catholic integral post liberal thing. Um, there's overlap, but they're not the same wellsprings. Um, but the passion that drives both of those things is a much more libertarian form of populism. It is like a Gadsden flag. Don't tread on me. Who are you telling to wear a mask? And the idea that somehow you can graft your political and ideological agenda to these people who are rebelling against what I guess Saurabh calls the medico authoritarian state or something like that, that once you, once you, you, you know, it's like the old English Kings, they loved the Irish as armies to unleash on their enemies, but they would never want one on the, on the throne. Right? Like they, they want to use that populist libertarian sort of don't tread on me stuff to win political battles in Washington. And then they want to wheel around and say, okay, we're banning porn and we're um going to impose a national sabbath which i'm not necessarily opposed to a national sabbath i think it has to come up from the ground up not from the from washington but whatever but the idea that they're going to impose post-liberal theocratic policies um from above on the people who just made it very clear they don't like being bossed around by washington by anybody suggests to me that that movement will fail over time and the same thing with the industrial policy stuff um if it if, as you and I would believe, it'll start costing people jobs and wages and prosperity, then those sorts of policies will will fall off to some extent so long as, you know, the the state doesn't, you know, grind them in, you know, embed them so deeply in sort of the lethargy of bureaucracy and whatnot that you can't get them out. But, um, like, have some faith that, you know, in time it's going to turn out that the stuff that we said we were right about in the past is going to be right about the future and take advantage of it then. But in the meantime, it's an exhausting place to have these arguments because, you know, everything is so much more about culture and passion and psychology and tribal loyalties than it is about, you know, the kind of stuff that you work on every day. Yeah. I mean, some days it does feel going into the office like you're, you know, the Jon Snow in that scene in the Battle of the Bastards where you kind of, see all these terrible arguments on various <laughs> economic issues coming towards you. And just as you feel like you're about to start swinging, you get ones coming from behind as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some bad ones from your own side, notionally. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, one point, this is not an original thought, but it is striking when you, when you think about the direction that the kind of national conservatives have been um, trying to take the Republican Party in for the p past couple of years, it is striking that kind of disconnect with, that we've seen in the pandemic here's a here's a virus that you know originated in china uh has caused kind of severe disruption to trade flows has seen countries imposing export controls um on goods and services has seen the need for a massive build-up of um, manufacturing capacity of certain goods um has led to um, the need for kind of sacrifice and and even things like school closures led to a big kind of um, development of of homeschooling um, out of out of necessity. Um, but yet, as you say, in some respects, um, many of the kind of national conservative crown have adopted a partial form of caricatured libertarianism. 
in being opposed to absolutely any collective action in the pandemic um, and focused almost all of their ire on um, vaccine manufacturers who are actually trying to uh, mitigate the worst social costs of this disease, um, public health officials who deserve some of the opium, but not not uh, to the extent that they've got it. Um, so it, it is striking that um, here was something that, here was, here was probably the manner from heaven for the national conservative movement to unite all of their different tribes. You had, you know, the potential to advocate for the common good. You had the potential to uh, embolden your critique of, of free trade, saying that nations are imposing these export controls. You had the virus coming from China. It was like perfect for them as a movement. Uh, and there's there's another world out there, another universe out there where um, you've got a national conservative movement that that, that took completely the opposite stance and we know the hardest lockdowners in the world and uh, and the politics of this pandemic was completely different and i just find it really really striking that on on that issue on something that actually probably you know all of us all of us classical liberal minded people would agree there is a role for government is the thing that they've advanced a kind of purer um stringent swinging libertarianism uh, <laughs> yeah no it's it's, it's, I it's, wish it's it wasn't a fascinating so, but, thing yeah. because the, you're right i mean I, I remember writing about this back in the day but like the pandemic was was particularly when trump was in office this was the golden opportunity for the people who actually believe that the state can mandate all sorts of things including all sorts of morality things well i mean like mandating that people get vaccinated mandating that you know all that kind of stuff there is nothing inconsistent with, you know, Adrian Vermeule's conception of the state with any of that stuff. In fact, like, I mean, Adrian Vermeule, I just saw on Twitter the other day, is talking about how, you know, the essence of their agenda is corporatism. Well, you know, like, and, and I don't mean corporatism the way RFK Jr. means corporatism. I mean, like old school, you know, papal encyclical from the 1890s uh, through Italian fascism, FDR, corporatism which is like everybody sitting around the table all the stakeholders making decisions for the little people um that's the kind of corporatism that he wants and um the idea that under that regime you couldn't mandate that people wear masks or mandate that people get a vaccine against the pandemic is 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 baddie particularly for pro-lifers and so like that's why i think that political project is so flawed is that you cannot pander to that kind of libertarianism. And I think that's what happened is right. Is that Trump recognized that his base wasn't on board for this stuff. And so he pandered to them. And then the people who had sort of the remoras who were stuck on the side of, of Trumpism had to go that direction too. I mean, another interesting parallel universe, you know, not one where we're all made of, of, of Vienna sausages or whatever, but like a more close, a more close in parallel universe um is if trump is reelected would all of the anti-vaccine stuff be much more pronounced on the left than on the right and i i could talk that round or i can talk that square but i don't think it's implausible to think it might have been um so so an interesting an interesting development on this was actually you know the the panel appearance of of trump with bill o'reilly the other week where I pretty much been signed up to the idea that um, a, a, that a lot of the Trump stuff was the cult of personality, as, as you've kind of written 
many times before, but the fact that he got um, booed so vociferously suggested to me that on COVID at least, some of this movement has kind of taken on a life of its own. <laughs> and and uh, it's been interesting that um, Ron DeSantis in many of his interviews has been much more kind of circumspect about the vaccines than Trump was on that panel. So I wondered, I wondered whether that had changed your view on the power of Trump and the kind of cult of personality going into the kind of next political cycle, whether this is actually something that would be picked up and run with somebody perhaps on these types of issues, even more extreme than, than, than Trump was. Yeah. I think, I think Trump's role in the party is, is diminishing. It's just not diminishing quickly enough. Um, but you know, you look at this brouhaha recording on Tuesday, Mike rounds over the weekend, the Senator said Biden won the election. And of course, Trump is attacking him all over the place. Um, it is a good sign that round said that it is a good sign that other people are sort of getting his back on that. Um, it is a good sign that most responsible Republicans are and conservative intellectual types are saying, look, January 6th was terrible. They might then go on and say it's being exploited or exaggerated or whatever, but no one's sort of very few people. Let's put it this way. I, I respect, or I think are serious people are rushing to defend January 6th on the merits. And, um, and you had, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham and somebody else go into, uh, fundraisers for a point for, for, was it in, in Alabama, the, uh, the non-endorsed Trump candidate. I mean, I, I think Trump has limited his appeal and that is a good thing by being so obsessed with this narcissistic thing about the election. The problem is, is that if he decides to run, I mean, we have the same collective action problem that we had in 2016, where, you know, he just has the biggest plurality and, and then you get, and then the cult of personality stuff gets reignited. I personally think that the Biden speech on January 6th, which everyone, a lot of people praised, seems to me that part of the goal there was to taunt Trump into being more out there because Biden's concluded that the only time he's on the winning side of politics these days is when he's seen as the alternative to Trump. Um, and I, so I thought that the tone of that was a little off, but I don't know. I, we, I mean, this is a whole other punditry conversation, but like part of the problem is, you know, I, I wish that Cato and AI and, and a few of the other places that are, that haven't gone in on all of this stuff. You know, there are days where I would like, we should really have a project about like convincing the donor class not to go into this culture war stuff too much. But the truth is that the real problem isn't that the donor class has gotten Trumpy, although big chunks of it have. The real, a much bigger problem is the way in which politicians like Hawley and Cruz and these others don't need big donors anymore. Big donors for all of their faults, and they had lots of faults, and I had my disagreements with them about all the things, were in some ways a small C conservative break on craziness. Like they just didn't want to be embarrassed by the Republican Party or calling themselves Republican or that kind of stuff, or the, you know, never mind crazy demagoguery and all that. But now, you know, Josh Hawley tells people, I can go on Hannity and say, you know, something, throw out the red meat, and I'll get. Two million or three million dollars out of small donor contributions, and so the technology and the media landscape have gotten to the point now where 
you can monetize jackassery at scale. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene raises an enormous amount of money. She is, by any decent definition, a demagogic gargoyle who should have no place in public life. Um, but she can monetize it. You know, taking advantage of these little old ladies and whatnot who have auto debit credit card things and and how you fix that, I don't without fixing the primary system, I don't know. So there are structural things that I think make it possible for the even if it's not Trump, this weird monster that Trump helped create of sort of anti-reality demagogic populism living on for a long time because they can now feed financially off the land in ways they couldn't when, you know, Ron Paul was putting out mimeograph sheets in the 1960s and 1970s, um, calling for race war, whatever those things said. Anyway, I, I've rambled. You're the guest. Um, um, if you have any response to that, you should, you should have, as decorum dictates, you should have the last word. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think it's an interesting point on the donor class. Um, I actually, when I was doing some work on wealth inequality a couple of years ago, when you know Elizabeth Warren and others were talking about how the wealthy dominated politics, I actually tried to dig into um, survey results about what the wealthy actually believed, um, and the distinction between what the wealthy believe. You know, there's not a homogenous um, wealthy individual. Uh, you know, wealthy donor class, however much everybody. Um, says that there is um as you've said in the past you know you have uh you had the cokes for the coke brothers and until relatively recently on, on on one side of the debate and warren buffett and others on the other kind of fighting it out they clearly didn't share <laughs> political views but to the extent that the wealthy do have uh divergent views on average from the rest of the population they tend to be in favor of uh a slightly less generous welfare state free trade um they uh, lower taxes, very liberal immigration, liberal justices. I mean, on most of these issues, they're not winning. <laughs> if they dominate politics, um, there's little evidence at the moment in the direction that the that the country is headed. And I think that's kind of uh, related to what you said in the sense that I do think um, many of that donor class are kind of small L liberals across both parties. And one consequence of them uh, mattering less in terms of raising money for candidates, uh, you would imagine on the margin is that the candidates will be slightly less liberal. And, and in fact, we're seeing candidates that are a lot less liberal in both parties. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a reason why for good and for ill, very wealthy people are more favorably inclined towards the status quo than not very wealthy people because the status quo is working for them. And again, that cuts both ways. But when you can get your financial resources on the left and the right from people who are passionately enraged and feel oppressed by the status quo, it's going to have a screwed up effect on politics. And anyway, um, Ryan Bourne, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for going longer than I told you we would. Um, hope to have you back. And uh, it was great having you. Thanks a lot, Jonah. Okay, so uh, Ryan Bourne has uh, left the studio, and um, I want to—I didn't plug his book again, so I want to do that right now. The book was um, "Economics in One Virus: An Introduction to Economic Reasoning Through COVID-19." Um, I first met Ryan in the UK years and years ago when we were both um, in the fighting pits, but that's a story for another day. Um, 
I want to thank uh, everybody for for listening, for tuning in. I know we went a little long. I think it's okay. Um, and um, I had something that I was going to announce, but now I can't remember what it is. Uh, so again, I, I I blame COVID brain. And um, that's all I got. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.